right? And let's see. Running. And then we can get started with the Yep, the... Oh, where did I... Oh, yeah, here. <laughs> I'm like, where's the... Oh, that's not it. There. Okay. So maybe okay. Working. So then I should go ahead and go here and get the music started and people will sit. Let me get up there. Oh, okay. We'll, yeah, because that's going to start right on. Okay. So once you get up there. Yeah, once I grab a mic. Okay. Yeah, once I grab a microphone, I'll just say good morning. Okay. Go ahead and start. Okay. <laughs>
So if it's a, a cloudy day or a gloomy day, she can make the trip, or if Emily can help her, she can make the trip, but most Sundays she can't. So she wanted me to let you know she has not forsaken us. She's aggravated that she's up there and not closer because of how far the drive is. So if she doesn't know how long she's going to do that or she's going to move or what. So be in prayer for that for Elizabeth. If you get a chance, if you notice you haven't seen her for a couple weeks because the weather's been too nice, you have to think about where that is to say. The weather's been too nice for her to get to church. <laughs> Then do us all a favor and give her a call to kind of check in on her. She would appreciate it, and I would as well, because you know who also is going to forget to do that when the weather's been really nice. So if we all try to keep a check on and remember that we will all get better off, but I do want to give you guys a big heads up on that. Um, anything else I forget? There's no meetings or anything like that that anything you're warning anybody about. So, all right, in that case, what book records the history of the free mosaic time? Shame. I've been trying to teach it to them. They just won't learn it. I have, I have two Walmart readers, and I don't know where that came from because I'm the introvert in the house. But I walk into Walmart, they're like, hi, hi. They didn't say hi to me. Like, you're in the middle of the story. They didn't speak to me. They don't want to talk to you. Welcome, welcome to what I do. It's your fault. They're like you. So, yes, Genesis. That's literally why the word means beginning. It records what we call two periods of history, what we call Oh, God, the word just went right out of my head. It literally just went right out of my head. <laughs> it's not that keyword for us. Um, there is patriarchal history, and there's primeval. Hey, I came back. Um, there's primeval history and what we call patriarchal history. Primeval history are chapters 1 through 11. Patriarchal history would be the history of the patriarchs. That would be chapters 12 through the rest of the book, which would be chapter 50. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. It explains to you everything else that's going on in your Bible. If you want to understand what is going on in Exodus, what is going on in David and Saul in the kingdom years, what is going on with these prophets, if you want to understand that, read Genesis. It builds the foundation without which none of the rest of it makes any sense. That's why that was your homework last week. So, I'm sure you all did that your wonderful children. So there you go. In what city did Peter heal Aeneas? Now, you know what book that's going to be in. I even told you in the reason for the question. Remember, there's the point is not that you increase in Bible knowledge and you walk around like that brain thing at the end of uh, a wrinkle in time. Remember, that was the thing at the end of a wrinkle in time, just pulsating brain. Nobody read this book. How did you not read this book? You're, you're almost the same age I am. Okay? I'm cultured. Never heard of a wrinkle in time. It won awards. Oprah made a movie about it, which I thought was terrible. That's probably why. I, I, I didn't watch it. I was told it was awful, so I don't care. But yeah, it's not so you increase in Bible knowledge, but so that you increase in Bible wisdom. Meaning you know the fact, but you also know where the fact is and why the fact is important, because then you will actually apply it and do something with it, which is the goal of knowledge to build wisdom. So read your Bible. It'll be good. There you go. All right, am I not forgetting anything else? That'll give me a long enough break, but I need to filibuster a little bit longer. Okay, you're Gotta let her recover long enough so she takes a deep breath. So in that case, I will stop rambling and we will stand and sing.
There's no words. Oh, get it out.
No special today, but it was a cool match. <laughs> she volunteered. <laughs> see, I care. Alright, let's see. I think at this point we need to take a minute. Because if I don't, I want to make sure that we understand everybody's So let's recap five chapters of Exodus in a couple minutes. Sound like a good idea? Just make sure we're on the same page because otherwise we're going to get lost in this what we did. So we've got Israel in Egypt because they went to avoid famine at the end of Genesis. We had a pharaoh who knew not Joseph, who was the one who saved Egypt. So he enslaved the people because they become too numerous. They become too numerous because God is fulfilling his promises to Abraham to make his people a mighty, large nation. So they are in slavery, they are being killed, they are being oppressed. Moses is supposed to be killed by being thrown into the river, which is what is going to happen to all the newborn sons of Israel. They come to the She eventually dies in the water, she floats down the river, Pharaoh's daughter finds him, he leaves him, he is cared for by his mother until he is weaned, he grows up in the house of Pharaoh. You would think that wouldn't go that many times if you had we get back to Egypt, we do everything that God has said, everything the way that he has said it, and everything happens exactly like God would say if people do what? The people and Moses do what? They complain. <sighs> <laughs> 
there you go. You are now up to, up to speed. So in other words, we finally got to Pharaoh last week. Moses walked in, did his old Charles Heston routine, as my and Pharaoh said, no. Which we all knew was going to happen, like and yet he acted like we were surprised. So the people no. grumbled against yeah. Moses, and Moses no. grumbled against God, and God is just going to stand there until the end of time listening to the complaint, right? Wrong. Which is why we had Exodus chapter Probably 6. So, what are we going to get here? Demonstration of God's attributes, a demonstration of his and our place in this world. Those two things are not mutually exclusive. Our place in this world is defined by him and our place. So, without further ado, let's read the first 13 verses of chapter 6. Then the Lord said to Moses, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. For under compulsion he will let them go, and under compulsion he will drive them out of his land. God spoke further to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord, and I appeared to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as God Almighty, but by my name, Lord, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they sojourned. Furthermore, I have heard the groaning of the sons of Israel because the Egyptians are holding them in bondage, and I have remembered my covenant. Say therefore to the sons of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from their bondage. I will also redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great judgments. Then I will take you for my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God who brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you to the land which I swore to give to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. So Moses spoke thus to the sons of Israel, but they did not listen to Moses on account of their despondency and cruel bondage. Now the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Go, tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to let the sons of Israel go out of this land. But Moses spoke before the Lord, saying, Behold, the sons of Israel have not listened to me. How then will Pharaoh listen to me, for I am unskilled in speech? Then the Lord spoke to Moses and to Aaron, and gave them a charge to the sons of Israel and to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to bring the sons of Israel out of the land of Egypt. And since we didn't have a special this morning, I got five extra minutes, right? That's how that works. See, Jonathan picked the wrong Sunday to not be here. He got the You tell my, my goal every Sunday is to make sure Jonathan gets the hospital on time, right? Deep abiding concern in my heart. And rewind to the beginning, something productive. The Lord said to Moses, now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. Stop. Don't miss this thing Because if this was you, again, we can tell why I am not God or given his power. If this many people kept complaining over and over and over again, what would you have done before you said anything? Alright, now we can move on. There's no training. There's not even a little bit of smiting. Not even a little bit. And this is why I encourage you to read your Old Testament, because the, the world around you that does not read and understand it by the way, I, I just can't read your Old Testament. It's just, it's just full of the wrath of God. No, it isn't. It, it's not. And part of me wishes that it was, because if it was me, it would have been. But there aren't enough people getting dropped hit by Jesus. Doesn't that sound like a great holiday name? That, that, then they drop kicked by Jesus. That is a great band name right there. We should trademark that because somebody takes it. Anyway, there's not enough wrath. This, there should be some wrath here. There should be some anger and some smiting. Why isn't there? 
Why isn't there? What has God demonstrated? His grace, his patience, and his mercy. That's why he can declare in the book of Exodus later on, chapter 34. The Lord passed by in front of Moses and proclaimed. Like, this is the thing you proclaim about God. And God is now going to declare his, the utmost of him. What does he say? The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate, gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin, yet he will by no means leave the guilty and punished visiting the iniquity of fathers on the children and on the grandchildren of the third and fourth generations. God is a God of justice, but he is first and foremost a God of what? Grace and love. You're seeing it in action right here. Real quick, anybody else sweating and come dying here? Yes. Yes. on it all this morning, but I thought it was going to be a nicer day than it is. And I won't freeze this, I promise, but I am going to get it where it runs a little bit. I apologize. I should have done that earlier. But I'm starting to drift, and that's just nobody wants to see. So, he is demonstrating that mercy and love. How do we know that what God says about himself is true? He shows you what he's doing in real time. Now, Christian, remember, this is a consistent message. God is demonstrating. Remember, we have our two timelines going. We have a timeline of actual people living actual lives, doing actual things. So that's Moses and Pharaoh and Aaron and Abraham and all these people. But at the same time, we have another timeline that arcs, and that is God accomplishing from beginning to end his purposes, building a kingdom at the end that was lost in the garden at the beginning. So we have those two things going on at the same time. Part of that is a demonstration of the consistency of God in all of these things. That's why the call of the New Testament is no different from the attributes of the Old Testament, John 5. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is these that testify about me. This is Jesus speaking. And you are unwilling to come to me so that you may have life. What was Jesus' consistent message? Where is grace found in him? Where is life found in him? Where will forgiveness be found in him? Not in you, not in your works, not in the word, but in him. How do we know that's true? Because what is God demonstrating over and over and over again? If you want to find life, if you want to find security, if you want to find hope, if you want to find peace, if you want to find mercy, you find them in God. Now you shall see what I do to Pharaoh. For under compulsion, he will let them go, and under compulsion, he will drive them out of his land. This is more of the consistency of God. Is that new information? It's, it's not. This is in line with what he's already promised. Rewind to chapter 3. I know the king of Egypt will not permit you to go except under compulsion, so I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all my miracles, which I shall do in the midst of it. After that, he will let you go. I will grant this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. It shall be when you go out, you will not go out empty-handed. But every woman shall ask her neighbor, and the woman who lives in her house, articles of silver, articles of gold, and clothing. You will put them on your sons and daughters, thus you will find the Egyptians. That's compulsion. That's going to the neighbor's house saying, we're leaving, can I have your stuff? And the neighbor's saying, I don't care as long as you leave. Take everything. That's a nice CD player. It's yours if you'll leave. You'll just get out of the country. You don't care anymore. Just go. That's being driven out. That's what God has promised to do. This should explain how long Moses' first foray in Pharaoh's court actually was. What was supposed to happen? Go. He's not going to do it. He's not going to say yes. You're going to do the miracles. I'm going to smite them, and then he'll go. What did Moses do? Let my people go. No. Please? Pretty please? 
God, we met at us, and you know, is that miracles? Is that mighty power? Is that outstretched arm and, you know, might of my right hand type of stuff? No. We missed it. How little things did it be like in the temperature? That's good news for us. Because what do you find yourself saying on a random Tuesday? Mm, I'm not where I'm supposed to be. Yeah, you're not. That's the beauty. It's the ones who are not worthy. Duh. That's the message of scripture. You're not worthy. You're not good. I, just people tell me all the time, I don't like praying in public. Why not? I'm not good at it. Well, you're not. Neither am I. Nobody's good at it. If we were good at it, we would be able to communicate rightly with God and we would need His grace and His mercy. You're terrible at your prayers, which is why He tells you to do it. Because it's a demonstration of your faith in His mercy. When you pray wrongly and he acts rightly, when you pray badly and he blesses and he promises and he functions rightly, it's a demonstration of how good and honorable and gracious God is and just how much sin he can actually save us from. It's good that you pray badly. You know, more often. You'll never hear a pastor say that, please. Just did. Pray badly more often because all of your prayers are bad. Mine too. So, verse 2. God spoke further to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. Turning back to chapter 3, God's self-designation, he is the one who is, the one who was, the one who is, the one who is to come, he just is. This is also a reminder to Moses of what? That I am God, and you are not. Remember this, because there's something we've got to return to now. Again, notice the NASB gets this right. Notice how Lord looks weird in there? That's because it's not the word Lord, which would be the Hebrew word Adonai. Yahweh, that is the name of God. So God spoke for this book, Moses said to him, I am Yahweh. This is important. Verse 3. Excuse me, didn't that snack microphone for me. And I appeared to Abraham, Isaac, and Abraham. Wow, you thought that, huh? <laughs> Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We're just going to smush it, and it'll be Ibrazak. There we go. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as God Almighty, but by my name Yahweh, I did not make myself known to them. Alright, you ready? You don't know this probably. That verse right there ties people in knots. I mean, books on this verse. I promise you we won't spend that much time on it, but I'm not kidding when I say books. Luke knows what I'm talking about. Luke's like, oh yeah, they made me read that this book. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's no fun. You, you get half of you're like, I understand the point that you make it to 17 of four pages. Hurry up, I don't need more pages. This is a problem if you've been paying attention in your Bible, and I will explain it by doing a little bit of adjustments here. Genesis chapter 4, verse 26. To Seth, to him also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. Then men began to call upon the name of Yahweh. Genesis chapter 12, verse 8. Abraham proceeded from there to the mountain on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent, with Bethel on the west and I on the east, and there built an altar to Yahweh. To, I'm sorry. That there built an altar to Yahweh and called upon the name of Yahweh. Genesis 24. He said, Yahweh, the God of my master Abraham, please grant me success and show loving kindness to my master Abraham. That was the servant going to Abraham or Isaac. Now, did you notice what they all said? And I put that in there because it says Lord like this. Well, who, whose name are they calling upon? Yahweh. Now, let's read this again. Rightly. I appeared to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Yeah, right. As God Almighty, but by my name Yahweh, I did, my, did not make myself known to them. See, this is what ends up happening to all the unbelieving books. This is the argument that they make. See, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob knew the name of Yahweh, 
Moses writing this down, or whoever actually wrote this down, because they don't believe Moses wrote this down, is saying that they didn't know the name of Yahweh. Therefore, it's a contradiction. The Bible is a lie. Jesus doesn't exist, and I can live however I want. That's, that's typically the way the argument runs, right? Is that a good summation? Do I, do I get a vote of a thumbs up for that one? There you go. That, that's the argument. It's stupid. It, it's just stupid. It, and the reason why it's stupid is because what it does, what that argument does, is it imports an understanding from our world and our culture onto theirs. Because what they're saying is, well, we had the name of Yahweh before this, so it couldn't possibly mean that they didn't know the name. And that's not what this is saying. And I'm not going to try to do any funny math stuff or any twisting recording of the Bible. We're just going to do this rightly the way we do biblical hermeneutics. Don't remember what that word means. Hermeneutics is the science of understanding text. So it's how we read the Bible. And the first thing you do when you read your Bible is everything that you think you know and understand, ball it up into a pretty little package and drop kick it up the window. Because it will only mess you up. And what, what that starting point looks like here is when we read our historical sections of the Bible, and that's what this is, it's what we call a historical narrative. The way we raise our children is a story, but it's a historical narrative. Real people living real lives in real places doing real things, explaining things to us. We expect a history book to be what as Western culture people? If you find a history book that's got mistakes in it, what do you do? When you went home with your U.S. history book in 10th, 11th grade, if you found a mistake, what did you think about the rest of the chapters? I can't believe anything these people write. They don't get these simple little things wrong. Because we demand what from our history? Precision and accuracy, because they're communicating facts. Why does everybody hate history? As someone with a history degree, I understand people hate history. Why do people hate history? Because it's nothing but a bunch of facts and dates and information, and I don't like it. That's because we teach history wrongly in our culture. We teach history like it's, there's going to be a quiz on this later. You know, what, what year was the American Revolution? What year was it? You just got to start writing numbers. You know, I thought this was history science. I don't like knowing numbers. We fail to teach history the way it should be taught, which is an unfolding story story of humanity, why the things going on in the 1700s are happening because of the things that happened in the 1600s, and why the things in the 1600s are happening because of the things that happened in the 1500s, and why the things in the 1500s, you get the idea. We fail that because we're just so concerned with the facts. We miss the forest for the trees. Here you go. To say they didn't know Yahweh, Exodus 6, verse 3, is wrong because it's saying they didn't know Yahweh. It's to demand a fact that is not being presented here. What was the starting point when God back to chapter 3 of Exodus. When Moses said, what's your name? Did he want to know God's name? The answer is no. No, he doesn't. Because he already knows it. The starting point to that argument was, I am not good at this. I don't speak well. I don't have any power. You want me to go to Pharaoh? He's going to chop off my head, cut me into little bitty bits, and nothing will be accomplished. I can't accomplish this. And God said, yep, you're absolutely right. Go. So Moses' point is, well, if I can't do this, and you're making me go, then what should be the most important question? Who are you? What gives you the right? What gives you the authority? What gives you the power? The name of God is listed in Exodus 3, 14, when he says, I am who I am. That was a designation of God. I am the one who is. You need me for life. I don't need you need me for existence. I simply exist. Well, Abraham knew the name of Yahweh. Isaac and Jacob knew the name of 
Yahweh? Did they understand that that was what was contained in that name? The answer is no. No, they didn't. They understood that God provided. They understood that he was powerful. They understood that he was going to give them something. But they did not understand that he was the one who is and was and is to come. The Alpha, the Omega, the beginning, the end, all. They didn't get that because he didn't go into that with them. Here with Moses, here with Israel, God is now standing that and explaining this is what this name means. This is who I am and why you should be following me. That's what this verse says. Make sense? Are you confused? Can you tell me atheists to shut up now? All proving what? Isaiah 45. I am the Lord, there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. I will urge you, though you have not known me, that men may know from the rising to the setting of the sun that there is no one besides me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. The one forming light, creating darkness, causing well-being, creating calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. Second lesson from Hermeneutics class. We'll give you this one because this is the lesson Dr. Sadley ever gave me. Well, they didn't give it to me. I understood this. But the kids sitting three seats over didn't understand this, so I got to, I got to get it in my Is Dr. Sandler's point was, read it again. I don't understand the text. Read it again. Read it again. Read it again. Read it again. And one of the one of the kids in class, I say kid, he's probably 25 years old, but I'm almost 40 now, so everybody under 30, I just call it kid. I don't know when that started, but it, it did, and so it just happens now. Because I read it, and I don't understand it. What should I do? Well, you read it again, and then he stopped and said, okay, doctor said, assuming that I've read it, and then I read it again, and I read it again, and I still don't understand it, what do I do? Well, he said, the Bible's clear, so that means the problem is you. And that was like a shovel right to that kid's face. He was just like, what do you mean the problem with me? We actually have a doctrine for this. It's called the doctrine of perspicuity. Scripture is clear. Don't ask me why we use a word like perspicuity to describe clarity. But we do. Like the most unclear word possible describes clarity. The scripture is clear, which means if you don't understand it, the problem is not with the Bible, the problem is not with God, the problem is with you. So, now we read the paragraph before and the paragraph after. We read the chapter before and the chapter after. We read the book before and the book after. Understanding how God operated in Genesis. Understanding how he revealed himself to the patriarchs. Understanding the revelation of his name to Moses and what was going on in that given page. Let's you read this rightly in light of everything that has come before. We don't read this and then try to reinterpret everything that has come before. We read it with clarity because the Bible has given us clarity. There you go. Let's end the lecture. You're now, like, you could pass the first semester of the first class to go. First one. I also established my covenant with them. I gave them the land of Canaan and the land in which they sojourned. Yes, yes, he did. This is your Genesis 12. He promised Abraham, go forth from your country, from your relatives, from your father's house. The land I will show you, I will make you a great nation. I will bless you, and I make your name great, and so you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you, I will curse, and in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. That was the beginning of the promise. The promise is continued in Genesis 15. God took Abraham outside and said, Look toward the heavens and count the stars, if you were able to count them. And he said to him, So shall your descendants be. And Abraham believed in the Lord, and he reckoned it to him as righteousness. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess it. That was the promise. Do you remember where the confirmation of that promise was? Or is? If it's not there, it's later on in the chapter, chapter 15, verse 17. It came about when the sun had set that it was very dark, and behold, there appeared a smoking oven and a flaming torch which passed between the two pieces. 
say you cut a cosmic, you divide it in, you set to the side, and then you pass between them, dealing wherever you're making a deal with. So imagine you still have to do this for a mortgage. But the bank would come, and he would come, and you cut a cow in half, and lay down the road, and you and the bank manager would walk between them. And then you would sit down and have dinner together. And the basic idea would be that you were telling the bank manager that if they tried to steal your house before you paid the debt, you'd cut them in half like the animals. And the bank manager would be telling you that if you don't pay the mortgage, we'll cut you in half. Aren't you so glad we just signed things now? It's so much easier. That's what was going on here. Now, the flaming, uh, smoking oven, flaming torch, on that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your descendants I have given this land, from the river of Egypt as far as the great river, the river Euphrates. Abraham was asleep while God bound himself to this promise. This is a big deal that God is bringing this up again. He has established his covenant. He has made this promise. What God is saying is, if I do not deliver your people to this land, you get to cut me in hand. Now, we know that's not actually happening, but why is that not actually happening? Because God's going to deliver his promises. By the way, this is another reason we know God is because if I was God, I wouldn't care. You can't cut me in half, so I don't care if I fulfill my promises. What are you going to do about it? That would be capricious. That would be evil. That is not God. God says what? I am bound, not because of you, but because of me. I am bound because I have promised. I have sworn. Therefore, I will deliver. Verse 5. Furthermore, I have heard the groaning of the sons of Israel because the Egyptians are holding them in bondage, and I have Remember my covenant. Because he is the one who is, because he is good and gracious, he is the one who sees and knows everything, everywhere. Psalm 139. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in the grave, you're there. If I take the wings of the dawn, if I dwell in the remotest parts of the sea, even there your hand will lead me. Your right hand will lay hold of me. If I say, surely the darkness will overwhelm me, the light around me will be night. Even the darkness is not dark to you, and the night is as bright as the day. Darkness and light are alike to you. That's an important distinction. No camping. Let the fire go. What can you see? Nothing. You ever been camping when the fire dies out? You wake up, you wake up to one in the morning, you have to go to the bathroom, and you walk outside the tent, it's like... Okay, where did you park the car? Where did I put everything? What are you immediately looking for? This is why we have flashlights, because I can't see anything, because when it's dark, it's dark. And my eyes don't work when they're working, but that doesn't matter. It'll be good. That's not the case with God. When God's in darkness, he's like, there's a campfire that went in, there's a tent, there's you, that's over there, and you left the flashlight over there, that's why you can't find it. He can just see, because there's no distinction between light and dark. This is good news. Knows, he understands. He's demonstrating that here with Israel. Verse 6. Say therefore to the sons of Israel. So, why are you saying this to them? Because God remembers his covenant and what is going on. So say to them, I am the Lord. I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will deliver you from their bondage. I will also redeem you with an outstretched hand, or with an outstretched arm, and with great judgment. So Moses is to return and say, say, thus says the Lord, which is your prophetic beginning. When you read your prophets, uh, 
Isaiah, Hosea, Old Minor Prophet, Jeremiah, thus saith the Lord, the King James of the Lord. Go tell them, uh, remember who I am. Remember what I promised. And it's always those two things. Because what God has promised is based upon what? Who he is. Exodus 3, the promise. Moses said to God, I'm going to the sons of Israel, and I'll say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me. Well, they may say, what's his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. Thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, I am who sent me to you. The promise is good because it's not based on them. It's not based on anything found in this world. It's based upon God and his nature. Verse 7. Then I will take you for my people. I will be your God. You shall know that I am the Lord your God who brought you from out, out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you to the land which I swore to give to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. Here's that covenant promise and that connection we're talking about in action. The character of God is going to lead him to keep his promises. The promises that he is making are in keeping with his work of restoration. How did we get restoration? Because what is God doing? He is reclaiming here in the book of Exodus a people for himself that he will give to a land that who has set aside? He has. That he has set aside. How is that a restoration? They never had it. Did Abraham really ever possess the land? No, he's wandering around in it because he's one dude and there's all these nations. What's this restoration business? Genesis chapter 3. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves. So we miss that verse. God created a garden. He created a land. He then placed his people within it. They were to manage it. They were to worship him. And what did God do there? Walking in the garden. He's dwelling there. He is having communion with his people. That's why when Adam and Eve sinned, they are cast out of the garden. Removed from the presence of God in that in that uh, in that way. They are removed from that intimate relationship with God, and it is undone. It has been the longing of humanity since then for what? The restoration of that relationship. What is God doing here? Taking a people, putting them in His land as His people, so that He may dwell among them. See that later on we get to Exodus. This is again part of that consistency in action. This is why your New Testament is so important. This is why the incarnation, the birth of Christ, is such a big deal. What was the promise? Who was that Messiah supposed to be? He was supposed to be, and he was, Emmanuel, which means God with us. Not God over there, not God looking down upon us, but God with us. John 1, this is what John is getting on about. The Word of God, Jesus became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory. Glory is of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. This is why the virgin birth is so important. It's special. It sets Jesus apart. It gives him something unique. It gives him a way of being God and man. Fully fine. Fully human, something we call a hypostatic union. Don't have to write that down. There's not going to be a test on that later, I promise. I don't promise. There might be a test on that later in the, in the 
He is literally God with us. The infinite, putting on the finer. The holy, walking around in our unrighteous world. That which is pure, dealing with our muck and mire. This is what he's accomplishing. It is the fulfillment of what was lost in the garden, what God is demonstrating the problems with here with Israel. Why do they have to build a tent? Why do they have to purify themselves before they can go in? Because they can't stand. They can't be in his presence. That's why Moses has to be shielded and only see a part of the glory of God. Because he can't do it. He'd kill him. His sin would just be ripped away. And if we ripped all of Moses' sin away, what would be left of him? Nothing. This is why the Nazis melted at the end of the book, right? Or at the end of the movie. Oh, come on. Raiders of the Lost Ark, right? They open the ark and they all melt. Why? Because the presence, the glory of God shines. And what does it do? The sin, the darkness that is us, flees from him. Well, what part of us is sinful? All of us. What do we do? Amen. Turn to the wicked way. I cannot There you go. Take bad double movie references and get a two for one. Tip your way, you should really We're done, we're ready, the promise has been made, we're seeing the connections being drawn, nothing's left to say, but all right, let's go, right? Verse 9. So Moses spoke thus to the sons of Israel, but they did not listen to Moses on account of their despondency and cruel bondage. So sinners are doing what? Sinning. Sinning. This is what they do. I mean, Moses has done the miracles before them. They saw and they believed. Moses has told them what was going to happen. They heard and they believed. Moses went and did, and everything he said was going to happen has happened, and they saw and they stopped believing. One of these things, it was not like the other. One of these things just doesn't belong. So here you go. This is why, this is why we don't get miracles like every other person. Because the, the lie we tell ourselves is, I would believe it, and then you can insert whatever your it is. Like, I want a voice from heaven, or I want to see the seed parting, or I would, like, dot, 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 everybody's got their own little fill in the blank there, whatever yours is. It's a scam. It's a lie that you tell yourself. Because the people saw the hand turn into leprosy, and back again. The people saw the staff turn into the snake, and back again. The people saw the water of the Nile turn into blood, and they're like, cool. Yeah, we're good. We don't believe they're going to see the hail and the frogs and the gnats and the flies and the cattle and the darkness. They're going to see all of that. They're going to watch the Red Sea part before them. They're going to walk through on dry land. They're going to get to the other side and they're going to get They're going to see water come out of a rock and manna come from heaven. The walls of Jericho fall down. I mean, you keep adding to the list of the things that the people of God throughout the years of the Old Testament saw, and you keep getting back to the same spot. And then you fast forward to the New Testament, and you've got Jesus making food out of thin air, and raising the dead, and healing the sick, and giving sight to the blind, and giving the lame the ability to walk again. And he's walking on water, and he's calming the storm, and he's... And then all it's interesting. They saw it all. And that's why what does Jesus tell you, you see, and you believe. Bless this food. You're called to walk by faith and testimony. And I didn't say that by myself. I got that from an apostle. Second Peter chapter one. Now keep in mind who's our author. Second Peter, which means our author is 
Peter, I'm the transfiguration guy, walking on water guy. Like, Peter walked up the water, and then it's a little baby on the ground. Process that for a minute. What does he say? We did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and honor, For when he received honor from God the Father, such an utterance as this was made to him by the majestic glory. This is my beloved Son, whom I am well pleased. Now, what's he talking about? When did Peter see the glory of God? Trans Mount of Transfiguration. He goes up the mountain, he shines white before him. He's seen Jesus in purity. He hears the voice of the Father coming down. We ourselves heard this utterance made from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. So, if you were Peter, what would you be telling everybody? Hey, you should listen to who? Jeez. You should listen to me. I was on the mountain. I saw the shining and heard the voice. And I was at the baptism and I saw the, the Holy Spirit and I heard the voice. And I was there when he walked in the water and when he calmed the storm and when he healed the sick and when he raised the dead. I was there. Listen to me. So we have the prophetic word made more certain. To which you do well to pay attention to is a lamp shining in a dark place for the day dawn and the morning star rises in your heart. Know this, that no prophecy of scripture is a matter of one's own for no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. When Peter's talking about prophecy, what's he talking about? He's talking about the Old Testament. Peter's saying, I saw all of this, and we have the prophetic word certified in the Bible. Preach Bible. It'll do you good. That's literally what Peter is saying. Don't just listen to me. We saw it. But it's a confirmation of what? What God made sure was written. Don't just listen to me. Listen to me and then compare it to what? What you have in the Holy Scripture. Listen to me and, and compare. And if it's wrong, maybe you have to throw me out the window. Who, who else have you said heard that tell you that? Yeah, listen to me because I can explain what I'm saying. But if I can't ever justify it by this book right here, pitchforks, torches. And that's when you assemble the angry mob of church people. That's what it's for. Because our starting point and our ending point is always, always, always scripture. It was for the apostles, it was for the prophets, it is even here for the people of God. Now the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Remember who has authority? God. There's no authority that exists outside of God. Just piggyback. Romans 13. Every person is to be in subjection to the governing authority. For there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. <clears throat> Meaning, if you are following someone for any other reason other than they are pointing you to godliness, stop it. Stop it. And the minute someone starts leading you in a way opposite of godliness, stop it. Run the other way. Loudly, hands in the air, turn into a bad Monty Python movie, go right away! And get away from there. I don't care if it's me, if it's your neighbors, if it's your family, if it's the government, when they ask you to do that which is unjust and unright, as you say, no. <laughs> Not just no. <laughs> Every single time. Notice what the authority for Moses is. Does Moses walk in and say, I want you to let the people no. God says, let's my people. 
God says to Moses, go tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to let the sons of Israel go out of his land. See, we're going right back to where we started. Remember, there is no white snake theology here. Okay, take a second to see if anybody got that. But if you all, you only know one white snake song. Here I go again on my own. Is Moses got to go to Pharaoh by himself? No. Who is there? Exodus chapter 3 again, 10 and 12. Come now, I will send you to Pharaoh so that you may bring my people, the sons of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and I should bring the sons of Israel out? And he said, certainly, I will be with you. And this shall be the sign to you that it is when I have sent you that when you have brought the people out of Egypt, God has declared. He has commanded. Therefore, what's going to happen? That's the thing that God has declared. You know who actually learned this lesson? Moses. Moses learned this lesson. He didn't get it. The very next thing is, well, all right, we established that I don't need to do anything, but who are you that you're going to be with me? What's the big about that? And he goes on and he complains some more, and then he still has to say, uh, circumcise version, and then he's still complaining again. Moses is a great example of sanctification. If Moses can make it, hope for the rest of us. Why do I say Moses understood it? What did he say to Israel at the departing work before they entered into the land? Deuteronomy 31. Moses went and spoke all these words to all of Israel. He said to them, I am 120 years old today. I am no longer able to come and go, and the Lord has said to me, you shall not cross this Jordan. It is the Lord your God who will cross ahead of you. He will destroy these nations before you. You shall dispossess them. Joshua is the one who will cross ahead of you. Just as the Lord has spoken. The Lord will do to them just as he did to Sihon and Og, the kings of the Amorites, as earlier spoken. And to their land when he destroyed them. The Lord will deliver them up before you, and you shall do to them according to all the commandments which I have given you. Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or tremble at them. For the Lord your God is the one who goes with you. He will not fail you or forsake you. See, why did Moses say that? Because he learned it. How do you learn it? The way every human being has learned everything since the beginning of time. The hard way. He learned it because he didn't believe it. And then he get, had to get the gibbs gib slap in the back of the head. So, sorry. And then he did something else. Okay, God, sorry. It's an example of sanctification. God guiding and steering his people so that they will reach the end. This is why perseverance is such a big deal for the Christian. Why will we get to the end? Because God will not leave you or forsake you. He will walk with you. He will guide you on the paths, as Psalm 5 said we read earlier. He will make sure you get to the end. Because if you wandered off, because God wasn't keeping you there. If we need to go after you, go, hey, you missed it. Go back and start at the beginning. We'll wait. It'll be good for you. This is what we do. We proclaim the truth of Christ. We proclaim, we proclaim the mercy of God. We proclaim our inability and his grace in overcoming our sin. We proclaim all of that in the hopes that we will walk. Because once we start walking that path, he will preserve us, just as he's doing here with Moses, just as he's going to continue to do with his people. And because the Lord knows that there was ever a group of people trying to snag your Bible, it's going to be Israel in Exodus. And if you're not there yet, give it a few chapters. We'll get there. Case in point, verse 12. But Moses spoke before the Lord. Remember the rule. Anytime God commands somebody to do that, and the next words are, but they said, nothing good is coming. Nothing good is coming after that, not even a little bit. 
Sometimes it builds up static and you literally just smack it to clear. It's bizarre. I don't understand it. Because it, the microphone doesn't like me, but it's started to behave lately, so I have not spoken bad about it. I just still convinced it doesn't like me. So anytime God commands something and somebody says, but that, 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 it's always going to be bad whatever comes after it. No exception here. Behold, the sons of Israel have not listened to me. How then will Pharaoh listen to me? For I am skilled in speech. Here is an important Christian lesson that we all need to learn, that Moses also needs to learn, and he's going to learn. Who cares? Who cares? You shouldn't. I shouldn't. None of us should. God said go, and you said fuck. Don't do that. God said go. I don't care if it works. It, take as your example, Jeremiah. 50-something years of ministry, Proclaiming the judgment of God coming, they throw him in a pit, they try to sell him into slavery, they put him in jail. They don't listen, they don't care. What does he get? What's the lament of Jeremiah? Chapter 20, somewhere in there. Read Jeremiah to read it. Read the early 20s of Jeremiah. That'll help narrow down for you. He's like, I, I want to stop speaking because every time I speak, something bad happens to me, but I can't. I just can't. He's burning within you because he knows what God is. Christian, this should be your walk. I'm supposed to go that way because that is the way God has said I should go. But life is hard when I go that way. So I want to go this way. Me? No care. Neither does God. Ephesians 5. Be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise, making the most of your time because the days are evil. Do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. That's the lesson Moses is going to learn here. I don't want to. They're not listening. I don't care. Or to quote the great theologian Wayne Johnson, it doesn't matter. All right, somebody else gets my WWE references. It just doesn't matter who you are or what you think. What matters is God has commanded you, God has promised, God will deliver and preserve you. That has not changed. First Corinthians chapter 3. What is Apollos? What is Paul? Paul writing, by the way. Servants through whom you believe, even as the Lord gave opportunity to each one. I planted, Apollos watered, but God is causing the growth. So then, neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but God who causes the growth. The one who plants and he who waters are one, but each will receive his own reward according to his own labor. For we are God's fellow workers, and you are God's field. God's building. That's part of this lesson here. Look here at the lesson. We've already told you one. That they're not going to listen. That Pharaoh isn't going to listen. He's going to ignore you. And that's why God gets to do a miracle to deliver you by the power of his mighty outstretched arm. And Pharaoh listened when God didn't demonstrate his power. No, therefore Pharaoh's got to be stubborn and not listen. You're, you're missing the whole point of this. You're going to find him listen to me. Verse 13. Then the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron and gave them a charge to the sons of Israel and to Pharaoh king of Egypt to bring the sons of Israel out of the land of Egypt. Once again, don't you want there to be like a little bit of slanging? Just like a little? Like you don't have to zap him with a whole lightning bolt, but just like singe one side of his hair so he got like a streak in it or something, so that he'll remember something. There's nothing. God, does God even argue with it? Does God make a concession of any kind? It's almost as if verse 12 doesn't exist, is not it? They won't listen to me. The Israelites didn't listen to me. How's Pharaoh going to listen to me? 
Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, gave him a charge to the sons of Israel and the Pharaoh, King of Egypt, bring the sons of Israel out of the land. God is, we're just done here. We're not arguing, we're not talking, we're just, we're just done. What's been the point of all of this leading up to this? Is God the God just in Israel? No. Is God the God just of Israel? No. Will God demonstrate his power over Pharaoh? Yes. Who else will he demonstrate his power over? All. Starting right here with Moses. Moses is complaining, I don't want him. And God says, all right, you're going. And from here on in, the answer from Moses is what? <laughs> Moses has even done arguing. What? Like, like somebody flipped the switch here. When we know who flipped the switch, who flipped the switch? God did. God did. He's going to do it. He's going to deliver his people, and you're going to go. And Moses said, okay, fine, I'm going. God flipped the switch. John chapter 6. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger. He who believes in me will never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I certainly will not cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that of all that he has given me, I will do nothing, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son, believes in him, will have eternal life, and I myself will raise him up on the last day. This is the lesson of Scripture. God will deliver his people. It's consistent in John, it's consistent in the rest of the Gospels, it's consistent in the writing of Paul, it's demonstrated to be consistent in Genesis and here in Exodus. God will deliver his people. No matter what trial they will face in the midst of it, no matter what power God has overcome, no matter what enemy stands in his way, God will deliver his people. Here in Exodus, the trial is the lack of faith of the people. The enemy is Pharaoh. And God will do what? He will deliver his people. Christian, nothing is changed in your life. Nothing is different from us than them. The biggest enemy, most of the time, to God delivering his people is us. Our love of the world, our desire for things that God tells us to put down, our desire for our biggest enemy is what? Trust. But our biggest obstacle is our sin. And God will do what? He will deliver his people. Sin is overcome by the work of Christ on the cross. Our sin and our love for the world now is overcome by the Holy Spirit, burning us and working inside of us, calling us to sanctification, putting aside the things of this world as a wall back to me again. And the proof of that work is that we are overcoming. It may be slow. It may be making progress here. I'm making progress here, people. Not like I want, but I'm making progress. It may be this stinking slow a lot of the time. You know what that still is? There's no progress. That's part of the proof. The Holy Spirit's working. I have progress. Therefore, I have Holy Spirit. I have Holy Spirit. Therefore, I'm going the right way. And I want more of that progress. We never notice that. We always notice I failed, but I didn't want to fail. That's good news. That, that right there, I don't, I don't want to do that. That's good news. That's the Holy Spirit. Flipping, pruning, chiseling, whatever metaphor or simile you want to use, it is at work. Why? Because God will deliver his people. How do we know that? This is what he's shown. This is what he's demonstrated. There is not a power on earth Israel could imagine that is stronger than Egypt. 
God's answers. <laughs> you think they have power? Uh, give me a minute. Just, just, this is why Pharaoh has to say no. And the love of the world then being demonstrated, the fear of people as opposed to the reverence of God is on display. Which again is good news, because what does our world look like? There's no fear of God before their eyes. There's no love of one another in front of them. I mean, if you've watched the news this week, I guarantee you at some point you have rejoiced at the suffering of another human being. I can almost guarantee. Because our political lines are so deeply divided that we see some, we see somebody getting what we think they deserve, and we say, What? That's not the love of the brother. That's the flesh creeping up. Do I want justice? Yes. Who do I want to do justice? Me? it will be perfect when he does it. In the meantime, I want the gospel proclaimed. I want hearts and minds changed. And the starting point of that is me walking faithfully in Christ. Because he has changed me. Therefore, I have nothing to fear. Because he will deliver his people. And in Christ, guess what I am? And it's a hard lesson to learn. But it's a lesson that we have to Moses actually learned it, which is again, there's hope. Oh, I don't think I'm as stubborn as Moses. Moses probably works. But if you can get him across, he can get me across too. So I rest, and I'm safe, and I'm secure, not because of me, because of God. Again, Lord, we thank you. We thank you for the testimony that you've given in Scripture. We thank you for the perseverance that you've demonstrated, for the power of your grace and your mercy, the love that you've shown, the work that you've accomplished in by your power and by your hand, we are safe. We are secure in you. And that our trust will not prove in vain. But by your work and your perseverance, we shall overcome. We shall walk to the end. And there we will receive the reward that you have promised. Because your word is good and your kingdom is righteous. And they both endure forever. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Somehow Jesus came and 
reminders. Um, remember Elizabeth this week, and remember Terry and Bill this week. Or you know, if, if nothing else, that Terry will be better this week as they go on this and try and fight something. I think science wise for a few weeks off and on. So you will remember those from me this week. I will be thankful, and I will as well. So let's pray. Dear Lord, as we leave this place, guard us, ground us, that we would know you and trust in you, walking faithfully as you have shown. Walking by your spirit as you would provide. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen.